We are in 1 John chapter 4. So if you will turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. We're in chapter 4 this evening. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible, Genesis uh, to Revelation. 1 John chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this topic of truth and love, we know that both are so important in our lives. We ask that we could grow in discerning truth and discerning air and being able to test the spirits and see what really, truly comes from from you, to be rooted and grounded in truth. And also that we would know your love. We know that that comes from your work in our lives, so would you be gracious to be more convinced of your love for us, the height and the depth and the width of your love, and also that you would grow us in our love for one another. So God, would you take aside the distractions of the day? Would you give us strength to be able to hear your word, to proclaim your word? God, where there is a need for encouragement, would you be gracious to provide it? Even now, would you begin to speak it into our hearts? Maybe those that feel abandoned or hopeless, needing wisdom. Lord, where there's correction, we ask that you would bring it. May we be open to your correction. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love is powerful. Agreed? How many of you would say amen to love is powerful? So. I remember when my wife and I uh, met, we were met and married in in eight months. Uh, It was very quick that we were strangers and then got to know each other, and eight months later, we were were married. Uh, We met at the end uh, of of the year, December time frame, and then got married September 2nd, 2001. And God really used Amber in my life to touch me with, with his love. I oftentimes describe that, that season of our, of our lives, in my life specifically, of springtime in the soul. There was a lot of part of me that had become dead for different reasons, and God used bringing Amber into my life to cause me to come, come to life again. And God's love oftentimes is displayed through an individual. And when we feel God's love uh, coming to us from, from someone, it really, really is powerful. And that was the beginning of our marriage, and now it's been 16 years later, and that love has grown and matured, and it's a blessing to be able to walk through life together and go through the joys and the sorrows and, and the adventures. And I, I think you've been impacted by love. You know, you, you think of maybe your spouse or, or your kids. I also think of all four of our children being born and being impacted by, by their love and their birth into this world and walking with them through, through their journeys and our, our life uh, together. So I think we would be agreed that, that love is powerful and ultimately it's God's love that's, that's powerful. That's how he moves our hearts and he moves our, our lives. But love without truth is dangerous and destructive, isn't it? If we don't have a love that's based into the the truth of God's word, it's ultimately going to lead us astray. And so with love, there there also has to be truth. But if someone has truth and they don't love, they become very harsh, don't they? They become very shallow. They're right. They're biblically right. They have an accurate view of Jesus, but for some reason, they're not very loving. They're very truthful, but they're not very loving. And this chapter, 1 John 4, gives us this balance of truth and love. 
the importance of abiding in the truth and abiding in love. John, as he's in his older years, is emphasizing to us the love of God, the truth of God, knowing the truth of God that sets us free, abiding in the love of God, and as we abide in the love of God, that we begin to to love one another. Maybe tonight, through the work of the Holy Spirit, God would reveal areas of our lives that we're abiding in God's love, where we're experiencing his, his love. But maybe some areas that we're not fully convinced of, of God's love. Maybe we'll be encouraged in some areas that, that we are loving, agape love. And also, God may challenge us and he may convict us that we're not quite as loving as we think. That maybe if we were to ask those who live with us or ask close friends or ask fellow members in the body of Christ, they'd say, you know, you know what, Eric, you're really maybe not as loving as you think you are. But I do know this, is that God would want us to go deeper into his love so that we can love. I went to a pastor's breakfast on Friday at Calvary Aurora up in Denver, and the pastor that spoke was from Seattle. And he was sharing about this uh, section of scripture, 1 John chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8. And he had this thought, and I want to just hopefully plant it into your heart and into your mind. Excuse me real quick. (coughs) I moved my mic to spare you guys that right there. But here's the thought that, that struck me and I've been meditating upon and wrestling with. Unloved people don't love very well. Unloved people don't love very well. And if you're not convinced of God's love for you, you're not going to be very loving towards others. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, and he says, I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God. He had become fully convinced in his own life personally that nothing could separate him from God's love. No height, no depth, no trial, no difficulty, even his own sin, his own failure. He was convinced that God loved him. And have we come to that place in our lives that we're convinced that God loves us and we're dwelling in God's love? If we're honest, if I'm honest, sometimes we're convinced. Other times, part of us is convinced. Other times, maybe 25% is convinced. Maybe a few days, we're really convinced that God doesn't love us at all. But the key to being able to love others is not hearing motivational speeches on being more loving, but it's to be fully convinced that, that God loves you. And that's what John writes about here, is dwelling in and abiding in God's love, knowing that God, God loves us, and then that, in turn, causes us to love others. So truth and love is what we're going to be looking at this evening. Verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. John likes to address the church this way as beloved. He uses it seven times in, in the letter. Other translations translated as dear friends, dear children. That's the idea here, is you're, you're a loved child, You're a dear friend, you're you're close, you're beloved. John is saying you're loved by God and you're loved by me. You're you're beloved. 
And he gives this exhortation. He says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're of God. Just because something is spiritual doesn't mean that it's from the Lord. We know that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church that Satan comes as an angel of light. It's much more deceptive for Satan to bring his lies and cover it with light, so-called. Cover it with spirituality, so-called. How many people have been led straight to hell through a false religion that looked very moral? That were led away from God in a genuine relationship with Christ by a spiritual experience. If you had a deep emotional experience that moved you and it was contrary to scripture, what would you believe? Would you believe your emotional experience or would you believe the word of God? I would hope you'd say the word of God. And so here John is saying in order to be connected to truth and grounded and rooted in truth, we need to test the spirits. Because there's God's spirit, but there's also Satan. And there's the demonic realm that takes place as well. The reason that we have to test the spirits goes on because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just because, oh, excuse me, many small false prophets have gone out into the world. That's the reason why we need to test the spirits. In the Old Testament, we f- see false prophets. We see Jesus warning of false prophets. Peter, John, Paul. He's saying there's going to be false prophets that are going to come and they're going to cause people to, to go astray if they're not careful. So how would you test the spirits? How would you fulfill verse one? How would we do that? Well, first we need to see if the, the teaching lines up with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Then the book of Acts. Do we see it in the life of Jesus? Do we see it in the book of Acts? Do we see it also in the epistles in which Paul wrote, wrote to, the, to the church? And if the answer is yes, it passes the test. But if the answer is no, then it must go. <laughs> and verse 2 gives us an even simpler test. By this you know the Spirit of God. This is how you know something is from the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. If the confession is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that Jesus is God and he has come in the flesh, then it's from the Spirit of God. There were Gnostics in this time period that were teaching that Jesus Christ did not come in physical form, that he was this mystical ghost like being, if you were to, to touch him, he didn't have flesh like us. He didn't have bones like us and hair like us. He was, he was this ghost-like creature. And this is contrary to scripture because then you don't have a physical, literal sacrifice for sin. And Jesus was fully alive. He was fully God in human flesh. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among Gentiles, believed on them in the world, received up in glory. The key thing to press into false prophets and the spiritual realm is what do they teach and believe about Jesus Christ? What do they teach and believe about Jesus Christ? And as you dig into it, where you will find error and not truth is it will look spiritual, but it will divert from the nature of Christ, his work upon the cross and the salvation that he brings. 
And verse three, and every spirit that doesn't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which, have, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. So a person that rejects that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh has the spirit of the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, remember, is against Christ and in replace of Christ. So this deviation from the person and work of Jesus Christ is a slow but consistent effort to replace Christ and to be against Christ. So if someone is denying the person and work of Christ, they, they have the spirit of the Antichrist, which ultimately the Antichrist will come, but this ideology is already working in the world. I love verse 4. This is for us. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. How do you overcome these spirits? How do you overcome these false prophets and false, false teachings? How do you overcome the, the spirit of the Antichrist that's alive and well in the world? It's because greater is he that lives in you than he that's in the world. As we study the oceans, there are many creatures that are living at extremely great depths. I read from a science journal. Despite the vulnerability of human beings to the pressure at those depths, there are sea enemy, worms, fish, whales, seals, crabs, and thousands of other creatures that seem to handle the pressure without a second thought. We can't handle the pressure. But all of these creatures can handle the pressure of going to the depths of the ocean. While this seems impossible, remember that pressure is all about balance. God has made these creatures to where they have enough pressure within to handle the pressure from without. So they can go down and down and down and down and they're alive and they're well. So what God is teaching us here is amazing. He's saying, greater is the pressure within than the pressure that's without. Because Christ lives in you and he has overcome the world. Jesus said, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And Christ, who came in human flesh, died and rose again, lives in you as a believer. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And this is why we have confidence that we can walk in truth instead of error. Amen? So though we can get discouraged about false teaching, we can get discouraged about many people's idea of who Jesus is, God says, be encouraged, child of God, because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And the strength within is greater than the pressure without. We see that in Daniel's life, in Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Here they had this tremendous pressure to compromise faced on them by the Babylonian Empire, by Nebuchadnezzar. But greater was he that was in them, their relationship with God. How much more so for us in the New Covenant? Daniel wasn't the temple of the Holy Spirit because Christ hadn't died and risen from the dead. But we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's Christ lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's greater than the pressure than without. Verse 5, they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. This rejection of Christ and replacement of Christ, they're, they're of the world. The lust of the flesh and the, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. And guess what? They've got an audience. They speak the world's language and they get the world's reception. The world's like, right on, right on, man. 
That's true, that that's right. But for us, we're of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the world, they're, they're listening to the world's message, but we're not. We're listening to the word of God. What you receive, respond, and follow represents whether you're of the truth or of, the, of error. Does that make sense? So if, if the world's got my attention and that's what I'm following and that's what I'm listening to and that's what I get my marching orders, then I, then I could be in the spirit of error. But if Christ has my attention, his word has my attention, that's what I'm receiving, that's what I'm attempting to be able to follow, then I'm a, of truth. What really is on my heart in these first six verses is the gravity of the reality of choices. What you choose to believe and follow has huge impact, has impact upon your eternity. It has an impact on your life here and now. I'm, think about even as a believer, now this is written to believers, this is a warning giving to believers. If the enemy's coming and throwing lies at us, maybe giving us a spiritual experience, we don't test the spirits. We don't take the time to find out if it's a false prophet or not. If they're feeding us the word of God or feeding us their own agenda, what if you drink the Kool-Aid for a while? What's the kind of destruction that could come into your life? Is this a big deal or is it secondary? Is this a, a part of every Christian's spiritual discipline or is this not that big of a deal? It's, it's a big deal, isn't it? Because when we walk in truth, what does Jesus say about the truth? Know the truth and the truth will set you free. So lies and error has the potential for destruction, but truth has the potential for life. So think about the areas of your life where not perfectly, but to some degree you've sunk yourself into the truth of God's word and you've began to see the fruit of that. You go, wow, this is true. This is right. I'm so glad that I believe this and I trust this and I'm submitting my life to to the truth of, of God's word. And like we've mentioned before, no one can read our Bibles for us and no one can make you test the spirits. No one can do this for you. Your pastors can't do it. Your Bible study leader can't do it. Your mentor can't do it. Eventually, we need to be taught to be able to go, you know what? That doesn't sound right. That doesn't seem right. That the fruit that's coming from their life and their teaching is not glorifying Christ. It's glorifying man. It's glorifying flesh. I need to be able to discern and and to be able to test the spirit. And remember what's tricky about it is it's going to be wrapped in a very spiritual experience. It's maybe going to be wrapped even in some truth coated with some lies. And so we test the spirits to get to the truth and abide in the truth. And then the rest of the chapter, verse 7 and on, focuses on the love of God and loving one another. Beloved, there, there we have it again. You're loved, you're, you're beloved. Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who is born of God and knows God. He who does not, he who does not love doesn't know God, for God is love. So we have a claim of who God is. God is love. 
And if we're born of God and we know God, then this is going to result in loving one another. Do you guys feel like the word love is a, a crowded definition these days? So what does the Bible teach about love? What is it when God says that he is love and we're to love one another? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13 and let's look at God's definition of love. First Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Any of your kids uh, learning to play drums? Sometime when we read First Corinthians 13, we should just have Mike come up and hit the cymbal all the way through the reading of First Corinthians 13. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love's definition, love suffers long and is kind. Love doesn't envy, love doesn't parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether they are prophecies, they will fail. Whether they are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So God is love. So first and foremost, this is the way that God loves you. God bears all things. He believes all things. He endures all things. He's kind. 1 Corinthians 13 describes Jesus, who he is, manifest in the flesh, his life, and his, his crucifixion. So first, in knowing God, and being born of God, do we believe that he loves us that way? Or do we believe he loves everybody else that way, but not me? But if we're dwelling in God's love, then we're believing, God, you are love. This is your definition of love, and you are faithful to do this and be this in my life. And then what we find in verse 7 and 8 is it says if we're born of God and we know God, then we will begin to love one another. So then the reverse is true. If I don't know the Lord, I don't know his love, I'm not gonna love others. Now, I'm not trying to say that you're not saved. That's not the point here. But what I think this does examine is how well do I know God? 
And again, this word is the Greek word epinosis that we had in our Ephesians study. It's to know in a personal way, by personal experience. This is not talking about your head knowledge and your academic understanding of God's word, that though that's important. This isn't even how many verses that you memorized, as great as that is. This isn't how many times have you proclaimed the gospel. This is how well do we know God in a personal way. How, how well do I know his love in a personal way? And if I, if I know him in a great way, if I have a, a deep personal walk with the Lord, then that's going to result in loving one another. But if there's not a lot of love for others, then that indicates that I haven't yet pressed into God's love like I could. There's more to know about God's love. So I find this to be extremely encouraging and extremely convicting. (laughs) It's encouraging that there's more to know about God's love, to be fully convinced and persuaded that God loves me, but it's also convicting to have to wrestle with, man, I'm not as loving as I'd like to think. When I really start to think of this list, how kind am I? How patient am I? How, How willing am I to endure with others and it starts to reveal some cracks saying okay okay, lord i need to to grow in love god's word talks about many times our love abounding there's no limits to god's love and that our love could could abound your love my love our love could abound even more to our families it could abound more to the body of christ because that's the work of the holy spirit it could abound more to the community in the lost lost and dying world And all of this flows from abiding in in God's love. In verse 9, In this the love of God was manifest towards us, that God has sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. How do we know that God loves us? Is it our emotions? Are there times that we sense more of God's love? Our, Our emotions are more connecting with God's love? And is God's love heightened that day? Is that why... We're experiencing it more. I mean, did did his love for us go to a 10? And the day before it was an eight? And and that way, oh man, I'm I'm really feeling it from from the Lord today. He must be in a loving mood today. Is that that the reality of God's love? No, it's consistent no matter what my feelings are saying. And the way that we know God's love, God's love is manifest, it's declared because he sent his only begotten. He sent his beloved son so that we could live, live through him, so that we could have life abundant through him. And please know this. It's not based on our feelings. It's not based on our performance. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. We look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we go, I know that God loves me. Regardless of my circumstances, regardless of what my feelings are telling me, regardless if I feel dry spiritually, or I feel like, oh man, I've got the warm fuzzies in my relationship with the Lord. Because there's seasons, there's times where it's so rich and it's so emotional and we feel like we're living out the Song of Solomon, right? Some of you are like, I don't know what that is, but that's weird, you know. <laughs> but then there's other times where it's dry. We're reading God's word and we're not feeling it, right? We come to worship and we're not feeling it. But this has nothing to do with feelings. It has to do with the concrete demonstration of God's love that the Father sent the Son, His only begotten, so that we could live through His lame. 
goes on to say, and this is love. Love is being defined. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We didn't initiate this whole thing. And what's phenomenal is not that we love God. God is perfect. He's, he's very lovable. But it's that God sent his son to be the propitiation, to pay the price for our sin, to be our atonement, to appease the wrath of, of the Father. That is love, that, that God would do this and that he would love us in our sinful state. We come back to beloved in verse 11. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see how this is connected? Okay, I know God loves me because the Father sent the Son, because of Calvary, because of the cross. So because I'm loved by God, I'm choosing to love one another. Because just like sometimes we connect with God's love emotionally, sometimes we connect with loving one another, the body of Christ emotionally. Sometimes we're really feeling it. I'm just so thankful for the body. I'm just so thankful for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm so thankful for my family and my neighbors, and they're just, oh, everybody's so great and wonderful. And then there's a lot of other days where they're like, man, the body of Christ is stinking miserable, you know? I, I love Jesus, but I just don't love other Christians. And they keep hurting me and mistreating me, and my family's letting me down, and God, how could you let me have these neighbors, and they're so difficult, and ugh, and, right? We, we have those moments. And this is choosing to love because God has loved us. And the more that we're convinced that he loves us, and we're abiding in that, then choosing to allow God's love to flow to one another, then God, God is glorified. Notice the words, we also ought to love one another. It's only appropriate if God loves me this way, unconditionally, sacrificially, has made this commitment to me to lay down his life for me, then we ought to do that for one another. It only makes sense. This is our response to, to the love of God. In verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. That's true, right? We have not seen God this side of eternity. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected or matured in us. So we haven't seen God, but if we love one another, it is the manifestation that, of our relationship with God. The word abide means to dwell. So if I'm loving one another, God is abiding with me. It's walking in line with his heart and his priorities. And the father's like, yeah, I can dwell with this. This is good. This, this is my will. This is my intent. This is, this is my desire. And then his love is being matured and is being perfected in us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. How do we know that we abide in God and God abides in us? Because the spirit of God lives inside of us. Did you know there's one fruit of the spirit? You're like, man, this is heresy. What got into Pastor Eric today? Galatians chapter five says the fruit of the spirit is love. One, singular. And the rest describe love. It describes love. The whole reality of the Spirit in our lives is resulting in love. God's definition of love. So when we begin to love this way, not perfectly, 
And we go, man, there's some love here that didn't used to be in my life before I knew Christ is, is my Savior. This is evidence of God that the Spirit lives inside of us. In verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. John has personal testimony of Christ's coming, his death and resurrection. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's grace. By believing in Jesus and confessing that he's God, believing that he died and rose again for your sin, guess what? God dwells in you. God abides in you simply by trusting in what he has done, and we abide in God. Verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So there we have it. John writes, and he says, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Can you say that? Are you convinced of that? I I know God's love for me. And I'm fully convinced of his unconditional love. I know that he loves me in a 1 Corinthians 13 type of way. And God is love. There again, this is, this is who he is. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So we're dwelling in God's love, believing that he loves us, receiving his love, and extending that to others. Think this through with me for just a second. I think it'll be fun and hopefully refreshing. What did Jesus live for? The glory of the name of the Father. That's what he lived for. He wanted to glorify his Father's name. What is the Father's name? The Father's name is his character and nature. God tells us that he's love. So Jesus is living to express the love of the Father. And that's what 1 John 4 tells us. This is love that the Father sent the Son. Jesus came to manifest to the Father's love. He's living for the Father's glory. He's living for the Father's name. What's the Father's name? God is love. So for us, if we want to live for God's glory, we receive the Father's love and we endeavor to love one another and that's how the name of the Father is glorified. Make sense? Say, say, I want to live for God's glory. Well, what does that really mean? How does that work out practically? By loving people, taking time for people, being patient with people, speaking truth to people in love, allowing 1 Corinthians 13 type of love to to flow through, through our lives, the love of God abiding in us. Verse 17 and 18 are very encouraging attributes of love. Love has been perfected among us in this. That we, may come, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so we are in this world. So God's love has been perfected in us. It has been matured in us. So that when the day of judgment comes, we have confidence. We, we have boldness. We know that when we stand before the Lord, that we are going to receive forgiveness and salvation. That we're justified because our confidence is, is in Jesus. And if you know God's love for you, you're not afraid about seeing your Savior. It's the ultimate homecoming. You're not wondering, do I have salvation or have I lost salvation? You're like, man, I know that I'm saved. I know that I don't have to fear judgment. I know I'm not going to hell. I know I'm the child of God because I'm trusting in God's love. 
So in another way to put this is this is how we know God's love's impacted us if we rest when it comes to the day of judgment. If you're in a place of going, if I died today, I don't know if God would forgive me. I don't know where I stand with God. Maybe God would send me to hell. It could be maybe that God's love has not yet impacted you. You have not yet received it through faith. You haven't trusted that free gift of of salvation. And so this is a, a great aspect of God's love in our lives. Verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been perfect in love. So God's love being perfected in our lives causes us to not live in fear because fear involves torment. Have you noticed that? When you're fearful of something, it just torments you. It torments us. But when we're trusting in the love of God, that fear is cast out. And this is in context to the judgment of God. We're not fearing God's judgment because we're resting in God's love. If we're trusting God for salvation and not living in fear when it comes to salvation, do you think we could also trust him for the situations that we're going through in our lives? You know, this would be like a, maybe a parent coming to a, a child and paying off an enormous amount of student loan debt. And that's torment. That's judgment. And they're like, you know, we're taking the judgment, paying it all off. And they say, let's go to lunch to celebrate that we've paid off all your student loan debt. And you're going, I'm not sure if you can handle paying for lunch. (laughs) Can you really afford paying for lunch? It's like, really, I can't. After paying off all your debt, I can't afford to buy lunch. (laughs) Of course, if they can pay off all that student loan debt, they can handle lunch. Sometimes we go to God and we go, God, I trust you for salvation. I know I'm the child of God. I'm not afraid of dying. But I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills this month. And it's tormenting me. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And it's tormenting me. And God's saying, rest in my love. And if you rest in my love, I'm going to cast out fear. Maybe tonight you find yourself tormented in fear and in worry and anxiety and depression and How many times did Jesus come and speak to the disciples and say, peace be unto you? How many times did Jesus speak the words, fear not? How many times do we see it throughout scripture, this message to God's people, don't be afraid? Because we tend to be fearful, don't we? And the fear is an indication that I'm not resting in the love of God. When I'm resting in the love of God, then the the fear, it leaves Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. When did God love us? While we were still sinners. While we didn't want anything to do with Christ. When we had hard hearts towards the Lord. Wretched in our sins, that's when he loved us. If he loved us when we were at our worst and is committed to continue loving us, we simply get to respond to that love. It's not that we loved him, it's that he first loved us, and we're responding to the love of God. I hope you get that. I hope it just sinks into your heart and your mind that God loves you. And he loves the worst part of you, and he paid the price for you upon the cross, sending his son so that we could be the children of God. Let the love of God sink in and really believe it, and then have the joy of responding to it. In verse 20, if someone says, I love God, 
and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? How true this is, right? If I'm like, God, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Nothing in this world but you, Jesus. But I can't stand them over there. They better stay on that side of the sanctuary. You know, they're going to get a knuckle sandwich. But, but Jesus, I love you. Right? John says, you're lying. You're, you're lying right through the, your teeth. And I don't think this is in a beat you up kind of way. It's just in a reality way. John's saying the two don't match up. If, if, you, if you love God, but you hate your brother or your sister in Christ, the love, the love of God is not abiding in you. He, here's someone that Jesus has died for that you can see. And you're saying you love God who, who you can't see. Verse 21, our last verse for the evening. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Truth and love. Truth and love. In this area of truth, being committed to test the spirits, to be on guard for false prophets, to make sure that we're living in truth because the truth will, will set us free. When the Holy Spirit dings and pings your heart, listen to it. Say, okay, I need to be paying attention here. When it doesn't seem like it lines up with Scripture, go find out. If it's wrapped up in all kinds of spirituality, examine the fruit, the truth, and then the love. How do we grow in love? How do we grow in love? Do we simply have to accept that we're not very loving and that's just the way it's going to be? I'm not a very loving person and that's going to be par for the course until I go home to be with the Lord? Or is there potential and opportunity to grow in love. I read from 1 John 4 that there's the opportunity to grow. And what's encouraging is the pathway to growth is knowing and believing and being persuaded that God loves me. And walking in relationship and dwelling in that love and then choosing to love others. So if I'm struggling to love others, that indicates something is not registering with the love of God in my own heart and life. So that's where I got to start. That's where I got to start looking and going, okay, I, I really don't believe that God is kind towards me. I don't really believe that God is long-suffering towards me. I, I really believe that God is just waiting for an opportunity to fry my face off, right? Or do I believe that he's a loving father, that he is 1 Corinthians 13, and he's committed and proven that he's loved me in that way, and begin to accept that, whether I'm feeling it or not, to believe it, whether I'm feeling it or not, and God, I know you love me because you have sacrificed for me, and you're alive in me, so now I'm choosing to lay down my life for others. This, this chapter sounds pretty warm and fuzzy, and it almost feels like a Valentine's Day message that I'm leading up to. But the reality of this is Jesus died in his love for us. He died brutally upon the cross. He laid down his life when he didn't want to for the will of the Father. It hurt. 
It wasn't appreciated. He was spit on. His beard was ripped out. He was mocked. Spear slammed into his side. Buried. Out of love. And when push comes to shove, this is what the love of God looks like. And sometimes it's connected with the warm and fuzzies. But most of the time, it's not a Hallmark card. It's the messy. It's the dirty. It's the, I don't feel like laying down my life for this person. But Christ laid down his life for me. This may or may not be appreciated. This may or may not result in the kind of life change that I'm hoping for. But that's not the point. I'm not loving to manipulate somebody. I'm not loving to try to get a result out of them. This isn't a chess game to serve me in the end. That's not love. That's not God's love. This is the father sent the son. The son laid down his life for me. So now I'm choosing to lay down my life for others. When it is hard and when it is difficult. And greater is he that's in you and is in me than he that's in the world. And God can give us power to begin to love in that way. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, as we come and we take communion tonight, we pray that we could meditate upon your love, that you sent the Son, that this was your plan, that your only begotten, your beloved Son would be crucified upon the cross and in human flesh so that we could be forgiven. Sometimes when we take communion, it can be just our ritual and our routine and help us to slow down and really experience your love and meditate upon your love and believe and be fully convinced that you love us. And then God, would, would you forgive us for being unloving? Would you forgive us for being unkind? Would you forgive us for being angry and having a lack of patience? And God, would you cause us to, to be more loving, that we could love one another, that love would abound? So would you bring fruit in our hearts and our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.